It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It is deja vu all over again, ladies and gentlemen. Just when you thought we were getting to grips with this coronavirus, getting back to work, getting back to what we used to do naturally, getting back to some kind of normality that doesn't involve wearing a mask or hiding inside your house all day. This happens. Yesterday, Chris Whitty, the Chief Medical Officer, and Sir Patrick Balance, the government's Chief Scientific Officer, gave their best impression of the doom and gloom twins, warning that 200 people a day will be dying come November if we don't change course and start locking everything down again. Though, of course, as they pointed out, that is not a prediction. Tonight, we will hear from Boris Johnson about the state of the nation, but he will earlier address the House of Commons on the new measures that he wants to put in place. We'll bring you that live right here on Talk Radio. The best uh, information that we can give you is what you probably already know, and that is that they're more than likely they're going to put a curfew uh, on all bars and restaurants so that 10 o'clock will be the last knockings and you'll probably have to be out the door around about 9.30 before anything else happens. Now, that clearly uh, is going to be a massive setback for those in the hospitality business and we need to hear from you we'll be talking to some people in that uh, obviously coming up today 0344 499 1000 coming up we'll also hear from professor hugh pennington uh, a government bacteriology expert who has put his name to a letter sent to the government from several distinguished medical brains who are warning that the present course of action is unfeasible and inconsistent with actually treating the virus while it still exists in our society and brexit party chairman richard tice will join us with his fears about the business community in the wake of what is about to happen to the economy 0344 499 1000 coming up after midday we're also going to be talking to ben bradley mp about the new compulsory re-education classes that parliamentarians are being made to take to ensure that they aren't suffering from unconscious bias as he pointed out in a column in the mail on sunday over the weekend this is costing us the taxpayer hundreds of thousands of pounds and re-education has a bit of a nasty ring to it doesn't it Sounds a bit like what Chairman Mao tried to do in communist China. Rewriting history, basically the cultural revolution begins here. Well, I don't fancy it, and neither does Ben Bradley either. Uh, And as ever, of course, we want to hear from you. You are the voices of common sense that inform our ever-growing band of listeners and viewers. You tell us what's going on, and we tell everybody else. You'll listen to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest-growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course... Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. By the way, in case anybody's interested, you know, there's some kind of virtual Labour Party conference going on. Sir Keir Starmer, in the first interesting thing he's ever said, has confessed that he is indeed a vegetarian. 
He misses bacon sarnies, apparently, and chicken curry. That's about as interesting a thing as Keir Starmer has ever said. Does that not make you wonder whether he's in the right job? He made some kind of speech this morning. Somebody asked me what he said. And do you know what I said? I don't know. I've no idea. I don't care. Because he has no power. He has no influence. And he's doing nothing to prevent this ridiculous course of action being followed currently by the government, which is about, I think, to get worse. Let's talk uh, to Professor Hugh Pennington, emeritus microbiologist at the University of Aberdeen, a man who knows a thing or two um, about dealing with public health crises, as he did once before uh, do a massive investigation uh, into the mad cow disease fiasco. Uh, Hugh, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Fascinating letter. This when it came out yesterday, uh, I was actually talking to Peter Hitchens. It was right after the um, uh, the the press conference that was held by Chris Whitty and Sir Patrick Vallance, and we were kind of deconstructing that and wondering why it was, amongst other things, that all of their graphs began in June and July, so that we could not really compare the death rates and the infection rates to what was going on before that. Well, that's a very good point. And, of course, we're not comparing like we like anyway, because early on, you know, March and April, um, we were doing only tests on people who were in hospital and, you know, who were at death's door, as it were. Uh, And now we're most of the people who are getting tested are not in hospital Mm. uh, and and, and so on. So we're not comparing like with like. And, of course, we know that many of the cases now, in fact, the majority of the cases now are in people who are not going to have a hard time with the virus. So, you know, there are two different scenarios here. And the one we're in at the moment, the predictions are all based on the virus going off on the rampage and then spilling over from the young, I mean, the under 40s, mm. uh, uh, to the old, uh, who are the people who have the hardest time with this virus. And generally speaking, that's where the mortality rests. And we know, you know, the scandal in the care homes, for example, because most care home residents are high risk groups because they're. They're elderly, you know, almost by definition. Right. And, and, you know, the purpose of a letter that I was um, I, I signed with all the other folk is basically to draw the government's attention to that, that the people who really need the maximum protection are these elderly folk who are the ones that suffer from the virus, plus all the other folk who need hospital treatment for other conditions like cancer, right. who have been getting it because they... You know, the emphasis has been on COVID rather than on, you know, rather than on the NHS as a whole. It's been on, you know, basically trying to eliminate the virus. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing. We're not saying we shouldn't do that, but we should have a higher priority on protecting the elderly and also on protecting people with these other potentially lethal, but uh, diseases that can be treated satisfactorily if you get at them early enough. Yes, well, I found several things interesting about what was said yesterday by Witty and Valance. Amongst them, uh, when they said, well, we want to be very careful that the NHS does not become incapable of dealing with other ailments apart from COVID, which it has already done because we are in that place now. Because I hear from Professor Carol Sakura all the time when we speak that cancer treatment is being uh, put off, that cancer diagnosis is not happening as quickly as it should do. uh, And that already, not because there's so much COVID treatment going on, but because so many of the resources of the NHS have been forced into the COVID wards, that nothing else is happening. That's right. That's right. I mean, it's a phenomenon in epidemiologists called harvesting, where the indirect effects of a, of a disease, you know, a pandemic, uh, on other diseases indirectly because they're not getting the attention they should. Mm. 
And as far as the uh, idea that somehow uh, we must be very careful not to go back to where we were um, in March and April, um, I was very unconvinced by the science. And many people are asking questions about the testing, um, whether it's accurate or not, what the you know false, false positives are, whether or not, in fact, we're pretending that more people are sick than there really are. Well, yeah, the, the, um, you know, the test, I think, is a very, by, by microbiology standards, the test is a very good test. Uh, trouble is, we don't really have enough. We've never had enough. And we've never had, basically, the lab capacity to turn them around fast enough. Because if you get a positive result, something needs to be done about it. Okay, for most people, we can't, you know, we can't give any treatment unless you're really sick and we can give you de- dexamethasone and that kind of thing. Mm. But for most people, they're not sick. Uh, but basically, the one thing that we really require them to do is not to pass it on to somebody else by essentially asking them to go into self-isolation for a couple of weeks. Mm. But if, if they don't get the result of the test, you know, within a few days, well, within a few days, they passed it on to a whole heap of other folk, quite unknowingly, because many of the people who pass the virus on don't have any symptoms at all. Yeah. So uh, there is a, 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 you know, it's not a brewing scandal, it's a real scandal with the testing because we know how to do it. The test's been around since January. We should have had a much better uh, laboratory system for turning around the results of tests quickly, because that's the only real way at the moment we have of really getting grip where the grips where the where the virus is, and then doing something about it. Right. And, you know, the system is not working anywhere near as well as it should. And Carl Hennigan, one of the sort of chief authors of this letter, which has been sent to Boris Johnson, Rishi Sunak, Chris Whitty, uh, Frank Atherton, uh, Dr. Uh, Gregor Ian Smith, uh, Dr. Michael McBride and Sir Patrick Valance. I mean, he's very concerned about this false positive scenario, which is quite difficult to explain. But the idea being basically that only one percent of people who are tested are testing positive. Um, But that could mean that the margin of error is so high uh, that many of them, as many as 90 percent of those one percent, might actually be negative. Well, yeah, you, you, you start being positive when you, you know, at the beginning of your illness. In fact, you go positive before you actually get any symptoms. Mm. And then you go negative after a while. And there are all sorts of imponderables about, you know, going negative on the test. Does that mean to say you're no longer infectious? Probably you are. But on the other hand, we do know that people can get reinfected and all this. It is quite complicated, yeah. although... My own view is that the test is as good as a test as we're ever going to get moonshot, you know, right. or anything else, um, taking, even taking that into account. No, I get that. But nevertheless, Hugh, the fact is that we are making policy and we are having government um, sort of determinations uh, arrived at as a result of all of these tests and as a result of the results of those tests. And if the results of those tests are not uh, what they seem, then we're surely making policy based on bad information. Yes, we're making policy based on the number of positive test results mm. rather than on the number of cases. Right. Now, one could say, well, OK, the number of cases, you, you don't actually fall seriously ill uh, until about three weeks after you've been infected mm. because there's an incubation period and then there's a period before you really start getting really ill and so on. So it, it, that, that's a bit on the late side. and But clearly there is an enormous amount of attention being paid to the number of positive test results, which is not the same as the number of people who are falling ill from the virus. Yeah. And you know, bearing in mind what I've just said about the gap between being infected and, and also um, uh, the uh, onset of the illness. But on the other hand, uh, we know from the test results where the virus is busiest. 
uh, in my view, what we should be doing is focusing on, as we have been doing, but even, you know, doing it even better in areas where the virus is busy. And, you know, in many parts of the country, the virus is not busy. You know, in the southwest of England, mm. in the north of Scotland, the virus is still pretty quiet. It's going up a little bit, but not much. Whereas in other parts of the world, like northwest England, the virus has got a real grip. And those are the areas we really need to focus on because we have two basic good results if we do that properly by contact tracing we, we can we can get those areas um relatively free from virus or even free from virus if we work hard at it and also the number of test results will go down right so that the government won't need to panic anymore well quite because panic does seem to be the order of the day i mean boris johnson is going to make a statement in the house this afternoon around about twelve thirty, which will carry live here on talk radio he's making another speech to the nation tonight um but it does look very much like they're going to be locking something else down now if it's not uh, just a curfew to 10 o'clock at night it might be something else but clearly your letter which you've put your name to suggests that uh, that the route that this government is taking the policy path as it's called is inconsistent you say with the known risk profile of COVID-19 so what would you rather see them do well I'd rather see them have protecting the elderly as a policy um, number one part of their policy and always emphasizing that and you know, because they're the people that suffer most from this virus. Mm. We focus on that. And I think another point of the letter is to, to focus on what we know works. And, you know, there's an enormous amount of evidence being built up over the, you know, the last six months from other countries as well as the UK on what we know works well. And we should be looking at that and putting that into our policies and focusing on the things that work as, as a, you know, in, in terms of getting the number of virus cases down and particularly protecting the elderly and putting those really at the top of the list. Like, for, for example, uh, care homes. We know that there's been a, an absolute scandal in care homes with a number of folk who have been carried off by the virus. And this is preventable and we should be preventing it. We haven't quite got ready to do that yet. As far as I understand, there are still cases occurring in mm. care homes. There shouldn't be any at all. Yes. We know how to stop it. But again, that's again, one of the reasons why we are seeing more cases in care homes is because the care home staff are being tested weekly now um, and the care home residents are being tested monthly. So as a result of that, and I know that this is another sort of slightly strange thing that uh, Chris Whitty said yesterday, that the number of tests is not the reason why the, the, the positives are going up. Well, yes, I mean, that's only half true in the right. sense that the more tests you do, uh, even if you've got a relatively small portion of the population positive, the more positives you will find. So, right. the, you know, the apparent increase in cases is partly due to that. And it's also partly due to the fact that we're testing a whole different raft of people. You know, uh, to begin with, we were testing just people who were sick enough to go to hospital, mostly elderly folk, not entirely. Mm. Uh, and now we're testing a whole range of people coming up through the uh, contact tracing system and so on. But a lot of the tests, most of the positive tests, are in people who are not going to fall ill from the virus right. to a significant degree. And that has to be borne in mind, that we're testing a different part of the population now. So this is, you know, where we came in. We, we're, we, we can't compare what's happening now with what happened in the past because we look, we're looking at it in a completely different way. But we still haven't got our priorities right. And that's the purpose of the letter to say we really must be focusing on protecting the elderly, and, and also using policies to control the virus that we know work. And, you know, we have examples from other countries 
We don't talk about China anymore for reasons I don't quite understand. But they were very successful. They've got rid of the bloody thing. And so has New Zealand. Okay, they've had one big importation. Yeah. But that's that's a, a, a situation that it would be really good to be in in the UK if all we had to worry about was people coming back from countries where the virus was busy and making sure they didn't pass it on to somebody else. Right. That would be a good place to be in. Well, exactly right. So in, in sort of a summation, it seems as though you would, would, would tend to agree with me that, that Witty and Valance are kind of... Um, promulgating this myth really that we could end up in the same place as we were back in March and April if the number of infections continues to rise because it will lead to the same number of deaths which plainly from what you've just said isn't going to happen. Absolutely agree absolutely agree we've done so much we've changed so much we've got so many controls in place that whatever wherever we're going we're not going back to um, March and April definitely not. Mm. Well, so that is an extraordinary admission by by you um, to them in a way, because, you know, I saw when I watched that press conference yesterday, I saw two men who were attempting to do what uh, Matthew Syed was describing at the weekend as drawing the data towards a conclusion that they had already made. Yes, that's right. I mean, they they were using that graph showing the exponential rise in cases uh, as a stick to beat us about. (laughs) Try and persuade us to do more. I basically followed the rules, you know, they, they, they were in the six and all that kind of stuff. Mm. Uh, and most people are, of course, but uh, and and bringing in punitive, you know, things that people that don't do it. Mm. But you know, we have to be certain that what we're doing is going to work. And I, I think one of the problems, one of the big problems, has been that the public has not been brought enough on side by basically being given the the basic reasoning mm. behind all this. We're, we're being shown these sort of predictions, well, you know, which said not to be predictions. People see them as predictions of doom and disaster. Yeah. There's no real explanation as to why that should be the case. Mm. And I think if, if we had a bit more information coming through to the public about the reasoning behind those conclusions, I think the public would be much, much more likely to buy into it. They're always going to be on. People are going to behave. We can sort them out. But the vast majority of the public has behaved far better than was expected in terms of following the rules um, because this was a big worry right at the beginning mm. uh, that you know, the public always oh, would pay no attention wouldn't do it they have we have and you know but we have to focus on the people who are really at risk which are the elderly and that doesn't seem to come across in all these doom and disaster things although you know <laughs> there's absolutely no reason why it shouldn't just to remind us that this is the group of people in the population who are most at risk who need the, the most attention, that's where policy should be focused. Not to say that we shouldn't be doing all the other things, but that should be where the focus is right. in terms of saying, these are the people we need to protect, let's get on and protect them, and this is how we're going to do it, right. based on things. And just finally, uh, Professor Hugh, um, the rule of six, uh, the curfew potentially coming in for 10 o'clock tonight, uh, or possibly tomorrow night, for pubs and restaurants. Any points or any of that? Well, I'm a bit sceptical about the, the curfew. Um, you know, people will just take their drink a bit faster. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the problems about pubs, and I feel very sorry for them, uh, but one of the problems with pubs is that once you've had a few drinks, you know, social distancing is going to be more difficult for you because the alcohol's already, you know, having a loosening effect on mm. your thought processes. You know, why, are the, why do people drink? You know, they kind of like taste, but they also like the effect on their brains. And, and you know, that, that is a problem for pubs. And you know, I, I think a curfew is just going to, just going to, you know, 
make really very little difference. It's a sign that something is being done, mm. rather than it's a sign that something being done that's going to work. Mm. Yes, I think that is entirely uh, what I would say as well. Professor Hugh Pennington, uh, Emeritus Microbiologist at the University of Aberdeen. Thank you very much indeed. Professor Hugh, of course, one of many names put to uh, the government in this letter, which includes, of course, Sunetra Gupta, uh, Carl Hennigan, Carol Sikora, Sam Williams, Director and Co-Founder of Economic Insight. There is no doubt, I don't think, in most of our minds that much of what is being announced and much of what is being said by the scientific advisors to the government uh, is window dressing. Uh, scaremongering and quite frankly uh, is beneath this government trying to tell people uh, trying to hoodwink people indeed that basically we are in the same place that we were back in March and April we're clearly not uh, you heard it from the lips of a man who knows about these things he's a scientist he's a doctor he's not some quack he's not some journalist or a man with a microphone on a stick as I've been described you know people are sensible in this country people know a pig in a poke when they see one this is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, uh, let us talk about something slightly differently because we will be filming Plank of the Week later on this afternoon uh, in the company of Georgie Frost and James Max. There are lots and lots of planks out there uh, and I'm going to name a few of them in a moment. But first of all, uh, I'm delighted to say that Mark Dolan joins me. He is, of course, a frequenter of this parish. He is a talk radio host himself, frequently sits in uh, during the week, but also is Friday's drive time host, has big shows at the weekend, of course. Mr Dolan, a very good morning to you. Welcome. And an occasional plank myself, Mike, yes, because you know, for, even, if, even, a, even a, a broken clock is right twice a day. <laughs> in fact, I think I've got you in uh, for something in October that I haven't told you about yet. I think I've put your name in for uh, uh, for some plank action coming up in the next month or so. But let's talk about somebody that I uh, have frequently railed against, not because he's the world's favourite person, although it's partly that, uh, not because he's Britain's most famous and greatest man, but because I do think he's a bit of a hypocrite. And David Attenborough, Sir David Attenborough, has finally agreed with me. He's agreed that he's a middle class hypocrite. Definitely. And credit to him for being so honest. Uh, ultimately, you should never deify any human being because we all have our flaws. And the minute you make a pronouncement on something or take a really strong, virtuous position, you know that you're days away from uh, being proved to be a hypocrite. It's a little bit like all those priests that take a vow of celibacy and then it turns out <laughs> they've got like three or four girlfriends. You know, it's like, actually, I personally have never stood on any platforms of, you know, whether it's any moral aspect or strong politics. Uh, in the end, you just try to live your life in the best way you can. And I've definitely not told anybody else what to eat, what to drink, or who to be in a relationship with. No, quite. Well, of course, famously, Sir David Attenborough told everybody that the planet cannot support billions of meat eaters. If we all ate only plants, we need only half the land we use at the moment. Uh, but he's now admitted in an interview, actually, he can't remember the last time he had meat, but then he does eat fish and chicken. Well, what does he think that is? I would call fish and chicken meat. Well, you're absolutely right. Look, the guy is a great broadcaster. He is a bit of a legend. He's right to draw attention to the fact that the planet is facing challenges. No problem with that. There is, however, an inconvenient truth, Michael, which is that last time I checked, uh, we were omnivores. Yes. Okay, Human beings are designed to eat the following items, uh, meat, fish, vegetables and fruit. Okay, And to drink water or in your case, the occasional Pinot Grigio, which is a, a better form of hydration. I'd rather, I'd rather a Pinot Noir, if you don't mind. <laughs> well, there you go. But the bottom line is that we would not have prevailed 
as a species uh, to pretty much, you know, dominate the earth if we've been fed on a, a diet of lentils. I mean, there probably are, are too many of us on earth and there probably is an impact just by our very existence. But the bottom line is you have fundamental biology. You know, we're human beings and we require meat, in my opinion. You know, if you look at veganism, it's very worrying in terms of the experiment that it's doing with people's health. Yeah. So the minute you go kind of veggie or especially vegan, you're not getting the protein and you wind up, in most cases, uh, living on a diet of sort of pasta and rice and uh, strangely futuristic hamburgers packed with a million dodgy ingredients. Yes, which they make look like meat, which I've never quite understood. I mean, if you're a vegan, why would you want to eat something that looks like meat? Well, that's exactly right. And to be honest with you, I think we're all on board with the environmental message. Steady. Um, but what you we may be. You is, might have is, sold is, your is soul. Not... I haven't. Well, the thing about it is, Mike, that there are, there are easy wins. We're in danger if we take everybody, uh, you know, off of an omnivore diet, it, it'll be a bit like the COVID measures, which it, it, it'll be well-intentioned, but do more damage than uh, than good, you know? And if you look at, for example, uh, eradicating animal, animal uh, agriculture, and you replace it with these enormous uh, monocrop fields, mm. which require pesticides and, uh, and chemical fertilizers just to keep them going, that's not very natural. If you want an easy win, the way to go is to eat meat and make sure it's sustainable. And I'll give you an example of sustainable meat, British beef, okay? All British beef, uh, as with Irish beef, is grass-fed. Mm. What does that mean? It means they're stood in a field 11 months out of the year eating grass. They've got four stomachs. Uh, the moisture that we're told the beef industry require, that the water comes from the sky, because last time I checked, Scotland was quite rainy. Mm. So I'm all for, you know, good quality meat, sustainable meat. I'm not the biggest fan of, of those uh, farm lots in America. It's basically factories where they feed them grain and soya. You know, we know that when we fed cows uh, sheep's brains, we got uh, mad cow disease. So, yes. you know, I think there's a happy, happy balance here, Mike. But please don't take away my burger. No, that's not going to happen. But what I'm going to question for you, though, do you happen to know from your contacts in the inside of government whether or not uh, this 10 o'clock curfew, if it is brought in, will also apply to kebab shops? Well, look, I mean, that is an ultimate question. Why do you think I'm out and about today, Mike? I'm on my way to the pub because they close so early these days. Yes, you've got to start early. Of course I do. But yeah, no, definitely not. I mean, we have this uh, huge obesity epidemic, Michael. And, and again, if you come down hard on uh, meat and protein, uh, you're just going to be eating more bread, more pasta, more chips, more of those processed carbs, which are making us fat and ill. So oddly enough, you know, fish and meat and eggs and nuts and all these things that nature gives us are what we are supposed to eat. Uh, here's a thought, right? I'll, I'll give you one group who really are not on, on board with uh, David Attenborough's message, okay? A group who are not woke. And do you know what to know uh, what that group is? Hey, tell me. Lions and tigers. <laughs> oh, my. Right? Yeah, I would say to you, good luck going into a cage and trying to feed a snow leopard a Linda McCartney sausage. Okay? Yes. It's not going to happen. I think it would literally uh, take, rip your arm off. We're supposed to be the superior species, but these animals know what they're supposed to eat. And uh, crushed avocado is not it. Right. By the way, Mark, I should point out to you at this moment in time that snow leopards don't actually live in cages. You know, they are only put well, there by humans. They actually live in the wild. Full disclosure, I've got a couple in the, uh, in the shed. You know, it was, a, it was a long lockdown and I needed entertainment. Yes, I don't blame you. Uh, you could be the new Siegfried and Roy 
uh, over in Las that's, Vegas, that's who fact. one of whom unfortunately got eaten by a tiger, I think, one of his own tigers. But listen, Mark, no, I still um, both we'll, my arms. we'll see you on Friday. Good luck with it all. Thank you very much indeed. Mark Dolan reporting in uh, from sunny, leafy North London, um, where he's about to go to the pub. Who can blame him? Uh, I may go to the pub later myself. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. Shopify.com work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Richard Tice joins me now. He's the uh, chairman of the Brexit Party. Richard, a very good morning to you. Mike, hello. I can't say it's a good morning because the news, Mike, is just so depressing. It's utterly, utterly extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, this government, led by Boris Johnson, seems to have completely uh, lost all contact with basic common sense. Mm. It really is unbelievable. Well, I was just talking, I don't know whether you heard, to a guy that runs a restaurant business over in Borough Market. And 10 o'clock, I did indeed. And 10 o'clock is a very, very bad time to shut down restaurants because it means, particularly in his case, you know, getting set, getting ready, a really innovative uh, uh, programme that they started in a place called Turnips, you know, which I've been lucky enough to, to have eaten at. And they won't be able to do business in their fine dining restaurant, which is where they make their money. I mean, it's ludicrous. It makes no sense. It, it has no basis in science. This, this story is going, uh, going on up and down the whole country, Mike, uh, where, you know, businesses, particularly in the hospitality sector, but all, you know, all businesses, particularly small independent businesses, they've worked so hard over the summer. They've struggled, you know, by hook or by crook. They've just about managed to hang on. They've invested hard-earned equity in all the requirements for COVID signs and this and that and screens. And now, essentially... Um, the uh, the doom and gloomsters of Witty and Valance uh, have have essentially acted as the sort of the uh, the introduction uh, to the Boris show uh, in the House of Commons today, when he's basically uh, going to put the frighteners on everybody. And, and you know, we've heard it this morning 
Uh, Premier Inn have announced thousands of job cuts, Weatherspoons, hundreds of jobs cuts. Uh, the, you know, every day between now and Christmas, we'll be hearing more and more of this. And it's so unnecessary. It's just so irresponsible of the government. They should be leading from the front, saying that we've got to live with this disease until we get a vaccine. You can't eliminate risk. You can manage, you can mitigate. Those who need to shield can shield. But the government should be leading and say, we've got to get on with our lives. Instead, uh, they're continuing to terrify, to frighten, to scare. And, you know, businesses, the only way that any business can try and survive uh, is to reduce investment and to try and hang on. It's it's very, very bad news. It's interesting, isn't it, how different people kind of saw what happened yesterday with Valance and uh, Witty and, and took it in completely different ways. I mean, those of us who I regard as the sensible people, the commonsensical people, saw that by starting a graph in June and showing no comparison to what was actually going on in April is a con, right? But those who wanted to believe it said, oh, look at that dangerous curve. Oh, look, that could happen. But it's still a could. It's not a will. Well, the extraordinary thing is it takes no account of the fact that, of course, back in March, April, when the crisis was at its height, uh, they were only testing people in hospital with the disease. Now uh, we're testing people across the whole community. There was a massive, massive question mark identified by the fantastic experts of Oxford University, the likes of Carl Hennigan, who's already proven the government statisticians and uh, data counters wrong on a couple of occasions. And he now uh, has cast major doubt on the validity, the very validity of the vast majority of these cases. They could well uh, all, almost all be false positives. And yet the government is uh, pursuing down this road just at the wrong time. It, it's a complete lack of leadership. It's an utter dereliction of duty. And it's going to lead to job losses. You and I, when we spoke last, spoke about getting people back to the office, Mike. Um, that's now stopped. Mm. Um, the 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 uh, the ebullient Michael Gove has now done a, another massive government U-turn and said instead of getting back to work, uh, now please work from home. So what's going to happen to city centres? Mm. Uh, you know, all those shops and restaurants and cafes that were just reopening, um, they're going to bring the shutters down again. More job losses, and so it goes on. And what does it mean, Richard, for investment in this country? Because clearly every country seems to have difficulties. But if you look now to places like Scandinavia and Germany, um, it looks as though they're in better shape than we are financially and might well, in fact, become better destinations for money. Well, at the end of the day, uh, global investors will look to invest their money in countries that they believe are stable, are well-run and have got growth prospects. Mm. And frankly, um, most global investors are looking around now, you know, you've you, you used the good examples of Germany and Sweden, and then they look at the UK, and they see a, a haphazard government that's following um, the wrong scientists with the wrong advice, with a total lack of common sense, U-turn after U-turn after U-turn. You can't invest in a, a climate where there's a U-turn every week. And a U-turn that the population, anybody with any common sense, can see is going to come. And sure enough, it comes when when so many people have clamoured about it that the government finally turned around it. So sadly, uh, global investors will be withholding investment in the UK. It's so different, uh, you know, from from just a few months ago when the UK was being held up as a beacon of opportunity in a post-Brexit world. 
uh, and people were, were literally sort of um, about to unleash their their, their investment uh, wallets into the UK. And now they've seen uh, this leadership, this, 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 this failing Boris Johnson leadership, this failing cabinet, uh, utter incompetence, U-turn after U-turn, and they're going to hold on to their money rather than invest it here in the UK. And it's an utter tragedy, Mike. It really is. And it's unforgivable uh, if the uh, the gains that Boris Johnson made back in December at the polls, uh, the, the, the massive majority that he managed to get for the Conservative Party because he said he wanted to get Brexit done, if that all disappears and the goodwill that he created disappears as a result of this kind of incompetent leadership that we're seeing through COVID, then it'll really will be, it'll be a lot worse than a tragedy. It'll be criminal, won't it? Well, you know, it will certainly be, uh, you know, negligence of, of, of the most gross kind. But I'm going to try and, and, and be optimistic because, you know, rather like you, Mike, the glass is always half full. Yeah. It's never half empty. Actually, you know, Boris can turn this around. Uh, he can have a, a, a quick reshuffle, bring in some new talent and, and show some of that traditional historic chutzpah that and, 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 and enthusiasm that is actually why millions of people voted for him last December and say, do you know what, folks, actually, we, we've got to live with this. We've got to show some courage. We've got to move forwards. Uh, and, and, and I think that actually could work and people would row behind them. The first thing they need to do is actually accept, you know what, this is difficult. Um, they've made some mistakes. They're going to learn from those mistakes. But sadly, at the moment, they continue along this mantra that they made the right decisions at the right time based on the wrong advice, based on the right advice. When common sense dictates, none of those three things is true. So a little bit of honesty and then a bit of optimistic courage uh, from the prime minister. And actually, he can still turn this around. Mm. And for the country's sake, uh, for, for you know, everybody's sake, uh, who's trying to earn money, um, uh, put food on the table for their families. Um, I hope he does. I hope he has a, a cracking night's sleep sometime this week and has a Damascene conversion. Well, let's hope so. I mean, it's proven now, and we were talking to your colleague Nigel Farage yesterday, Richard. He said that, you know, the one thing about this government is it's very much led by public opinion rather than making public opinion sort of follow it. Um, it may be entirely possible that we make enough noise uh, that that puts Boris Johnson off actually trying to lock down the economy too strongly and too hard. But I think surely the first thing he's got to do is lose witty and lose valence and start talking to people like Professor Carl Hennigan, who's written this letter that I've got here in front of me uh, alongside yep. Carol Sikori, Sunitra Gupta and Sam Williams and actually start following some science that will help the economy. Uh, completely. I mean, the reality is the scientists that the government have been listening to have, have, you know, much of their advice has turned out, uh, you know, to be flawed. Uh, the judgments the government's made has been wrong. They need to listen to some people who've got a track record in this crisis of success. And the experts at Oxford University are, are, are in my view, without question, uh, leading the field in this regard. The government needs to start listening to them and it needs to start applying some common sense. And, and, and you know, we're, we're essentially launching a campaign, you know, saying, please write to your MPs, because ultimately uh, MPs, you know, they, they look at the weight of their post bag in the morning. And if they get hundreds and hundreds of letters from constituents saying no to lockdown, mm. apply some common sense, we've got to live with this virus, then actually those MPs may then have, uh, have an impact uh, on Boris Johnson as, as as public opinion starts to weigh on him. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, we, 
view that as the right way forward. We, we have to say no to lockdown yeah. uh, to this government, to this prime minister. And certainly anecdotally, you know, by no means is it a scientific study, but it's about as uh, scientific as Chris Whitty's graphs yesterday. Uh, 80% of people on a talk radio poll said no to lockdown. Most people in this country will not put up with it. Most people in this country are sick to death of it. They've got kids at school. Um, you know, they're having to deal with life in general. They're clinging on to their jobs. You know, if we, if we, I don't think we'll ever have, have another second lockdown as bad as the first one, but any kind of lockdown uh, and any reversal uh, is going to be a disaster if they shut the schools, which my, my kids' teachers are telling my kids they're going to shut the schools. I'm like, why are they telling them that? Well, you're seeing lots of uh, year groups and schools uh, being sent home. But as you, you, know, as you said, I mean, the, the talk radio poll, um, you know, talk radio is, of course, the home of common sense. Uh, Indeed. And, 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 and you know, the reality is that uh, your listeners are applying that basic common sense and saying we must not have another lockdown or any version thereof. And the government may bring in all these restrictions and pretend it's not a lockdown. But in truth, it is a lockdown of the ability of businesses to invest. It's a lockdown of the ability of businesses uh, to employ people uh, in lots of shops, restaurants, cafes. Um, That will lead to mass unemployment. Uh, And it is totally, uh, totally unnecessary, Mike. And it's, it's just so sad when there's, you know, such an opportunity with courage, with boldness, with leadership uh, to take this great nation forward. And, you know, we should be celebrating the end of the transition period, um, you know, a, a, a proper Brexit. And instead, um, uh, this sort of weak, cowardly leadership. Uh, is going to drag the nation down at this rate. Yeah, I know. A lot of people say to me as well, Richard, at the moment, that they're looking actively, not necessarily right now, but at some point in the future, possibly for an alternative voice, some other party that could represent them. And the Brexit Party, uh, very successful, of course, in Europe, very successful at the last election in terms of, um, you know, making sure that the Tory party's kept its sort of feet to the fire, if you like, and they kept the hard Brexit line. Um, any chance that, that you guys might somehow rejuvenate yourselves as something other than just the Brexit party and you could become some kind of people's party? Well, um, look, the, the honest answer is you're not alone. Lots of people are saying that we were so successful last year. Um, you know, we were hoping this government uh, w- would take the country forward. I think the reality is, Mike, um, the jury's out. We've got to keep a, a, an open mind. Um, you know, the government's been elected uh, for a full term. It's got a good majority. We want to try and offer help and support because it's so important and, and, and you know, so much is going to happen um, uh, during that, j- during this term. But if they carry on like this, then, then really, uh, you know, at some point, um, and we may be approaching that, uh, people are going to have to say enough is enough. We cannot tolerate this weak, feeble leadership any longer. So um, let's wait and see, Mike, uh, where it goes. You know, I, I still want uh, this prime minister, this cabinet, uh, to lead us to a, you know to, to great success and opportunity um, as soon as possible. And, and I still think it's possible. Uh, but um, but you know they've got to change, and they've got to change very fast. They've got to grasp the nettle, really, haven't they? They've just got to. At some point, they've got to realise that this nonsensical kind of science that they're following. Because that's what it is. It's all about modelling. It's all about what ifs. It's all about possibilities. You know, it's not about, uh, you know, taking a situation and controlling it. 
It's about being led by a situation, which is never the way to, to do government as far as I'm concerned. So they just really need somebody to say, look, this is how we need to get out of this. We can't keep worrying about what might happen. We have to do something rather than just sit and wait for something else to be done to us. Yeah, you, you can't lead uh, anything, whether it's, uh, you know, whether it's a small business, a large business or whether it's a nation um, by cowering behind the sofa mm. and, and hoping that, you know, the cat's not going to hit you. Um, you. You've got to get out. You've got to lead from the front um, with optimism, with enthusiasm and with some real courage. And it's that utter lack of courage and front foot leadership at the moment uh, that is uh, that is holding us back. It's making more people uh, petrified. I, I do worry, Mike, that we're in a situation now where it's unbelievable to say this. The country may be even more divided than it was on Brexit. Mm. You've got a big chunk of the population that sadly have been terrified. Um, and then you've got another huge tranche of the population that's utterly furious, furious uh, with this weak leadership, this incompetence uh, in delivery of what needs to be done. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it's not healthy for anybody. Um, and you talk about health, Mike. I mean, you know, we all love the NHS, uh, but the tragedy of you know, tens of thousands of additional early cancer deaths cardiac deaths, uh, mental health issues, um, earlier suicides. Um, you, you know, this is this is all being forgotten by Matt Hancock and the leaders uh, of the NHS. Um, you know, we continue to hear that GP surgeries, you can't get appointments. Mm. I'm hearing people, they've got an appointment in a year's time for a consultation. Yeah, this is just not good enough. No. Um, you know, we, we need to focus on the health of the nation, not just uh, on... Uh, keeping hospitals empty, including all the lots of private hospitals, uh, in case there's a COVID surge, which all the data uh, actually indicates um, there won't be a surge of hospitalizations and there won't be a surge of deaths. And that's why we've got to be front foot forward. We, we, we've got to show some leadership, some confidence. And yes, of course, we all keep washing our hands. And yes, we'd all rather not wear a mask. You know, but 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 we can live with it if, if if people think that's the right thing to do, despite you know modest scientific evidence. We can live with all of that as long as we have some strong, bold leadership that says this is how we're getting out of it. This is how we've got to live with it. Um, and those who've got um, uh, you know other medical conditions or are vulnerable need shielding, they can be they can be shielded. We know how to do that. Um, you know, we, we have made progress. We're treating patients better who've got COVID with remdesivir, with dexamethasone, um, with other treatments, with proning. So, you know, we've made huge strides. We've learned a lot. Let's, you know, let's use those, those lessons um, and the gains and say, actually, we can move forward. We can do this. We are a proud, strong, great nation. And we do not want to be led to cowering behind the sofa. Great message, Richard. Thank you very much indeed. Richard Tice, uh, Brexit Party chairman, uh, with a very positive message for the government, uh, for the country, and also for all of us. We need a roadmap out of here, right? Somebody needs to provide one. Uh, I can happily help if that's what they need. Uh, but Boris Johnson needs to get a grip. He needs to get a roadmap. He needs to get in the car and he needs to start driving uh, for the Holy Land. That's what we need, right? This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.
Now, it's been a pretty strange year, all things considered, um, and it hasn't just been strange because of COVID. It's also been strange because of the kind of phenomenon, uh, for want of a better word, uh, of Black Lives Matter, of Extinction Rebellion, of all of the kind of virtue signalling agencies which are now out there. Uh, People are being told that if you're white, they don't understand racism. People are being told that you can't basically question anybody uh, who is a person of colour just in case uh, you offend them in some way. Uh, People are being told that they need to re-educate themselves or go and get yourself educated. It's one of those phrases that seems to have been born uh, out of uh, 2020. Let's talk to Ben Bradley now, Conservative MP for Mansfield, because I was quite shocked, Ben, a very good afternoon to you, to learn about this public money that's being spent on re-educating all of our MPs. I do, mate. Yeah, it's um, a lot of money as well. I think we're into about three quarters of a million for the first course that we've all been told to do over the summer and another potentially three quarters of a million on the way. Right. And what is the course called and what's it supposed to do? Uh, So this one that they're planning now is called uh, Unconscious Bias Training. It's exactly as you just said, that uh, we're all closet racists. We just don't know it. Hmm. Um, And we need to uh, be re-educated about the language that we use, uh, make sure we don't ever offend anybody, which obviously leads to really good scrutiny in Parliament, as you can imagine, if you're trying desperately not to offend. Right. Well, I mean, Keir Starmer's just got up and given uh, Boris Johnson a bit of a coating at a press conference. I presume that would be termed offensive, would it? If he's being mean, Mike, then obviously we shouldn't be being mean, should we? Um, <laughs> he has committed to doing the training, though, hasn't he, Sakir? Well, he's, uh, called, well, he's called. I mean, he's called Boris Johnson. He's called him incompetent. So I think that's quite mean, isn't it? That's uh, a bit of a, a, a judgment, really, that he shouldn't be making, should he? Without, um, you know, uh, considering all of the reasons why Boris might have, you know, uh, conditions that might make him particularly offended or emotional about that. You yeah. know, maybe he needs to think that through a little bit more. I mean, there will be people listening to this, um, probably knowing more about it than I do, because they may have uh, been approached by the company they work for to be told you're going to be having to do the same thing because you're obviously in need of uh, some uh, unconscious bias training. Well, it's been rolled out across the board. It's mad, to be honest, how this, um, in my view, overtly leftist kind of um, programming has been rolled out across the public sector. Mm. Um, lots of people in private sector organisations now, you know, very keen to be seen to be doing um, things like this, the politically correct kind of uh, appealing to the Twitter sphere. And it's been rolled out across the board. I'm very lucky that I can say no, but I'm conscious that lots of people in workplaces around the country aren't going to have the luxury of doing that. Right. And how is it you can get away with not doing it then? Well, I have been called into the Speaker's office. I'm going to get a telling off later in the week, I right. think. Um, but um, ultimately, obviously, I'm answerable to my electorate. And um, the feedback I've had since since the article appeared uh, in the mail this weekend uh, has been really overwhelmingly positive from constituents who are fed up with being uh, preached to uh, or preached at by the, the kind of metropolitan types who, who don't really understand the, the culture of our part of the world in, no. in that perception. Well, um, no, exactly so, right. Also, there's a kind of shamefulness now that's attached to being British, you know? I mean, I saw, uh, for example... Uh, Donald Trump last week talking about, uh, you know, reintroducing patriotism to classrooms and teaching people about the United States of America. And there was a lot of sneering that went on on this side of the Atlantic uh, because, you know, we should never do anything like that, as if learning about our own heritage and our own country is somehow wrong. It's mad, isn't it? I mean, you know, Donald Trump has many faults, but actually, you know, believing in your country and that patriotic um, belief in, in, you know, what we can achieve as a country is something that's replicated around, um, certainly around uh, the many kind of red wall or blue wall constituencies that went conservative in December because they were fed up right. um, with us being ashamed of our own history and, and apologising for it. Right. And also this kind of militant arm of Black Lives Matter, which makes out that basically every black person in this country is somehow disadvantaged because of us, 
being white is a nonsense because I know lots of black people in the media, lots of black people generally, friends of mine who'd say, you know, it's actually insulting to make out that we somehow need a helping hand to get through life in the same way as white people because it's not true. It's been steadily happening for a while, hasn't it? You find a lot of women in the Conservative Party who find it really offensive, the idea that they should be on all women shortlist. And yeah. That's the only way they can possibly get elected. Right. Those kind of conversations have been happening for a while. Um, you know, but we know that the biggest indicator of people's life chances uh, in this country is still social class. Um, it's still the economic background that you come from, not your, your race or your gender. Right. Uh, and that's something, you know, that isn't a protective characteristic. It's not something that we, we support people with. Um, you know, I've got a big campaign in Parliament about white working class boys who yeah. are, in terms of attainment and, and life opportunity are, are bottom of the list, actually, yes. um, and tend to get forgotten. Well, there was another study, I think, that was published over the weekend in which that was proven to be the case, that the most um, sort of unmobile un in terms of social class uh, in Britain are white working class boys. And, and I've said this frequently about things like the BBC. I mean, they're spending £100 million on diversity at the BBC to try and make it more diverse. But the trouble with the BBC is it's full of people from the middle classes. There aren't any working class white kids in Broadcasting House. If you go looking for one, you'll be there a long time. Quite. And, you know, we've got this obsession haven't we, with diversity of, of physical characteristics rather than diversity of thought or opinion or background. Yeah. Um, you know, we've, we've done it in government. You know, we'll, we'll have the most diverse government ever, but everyone went to Eton and Oxbridge. You know, it's not quite um, as representative of the country as you would really like. But it's, it's all about being seen to do something rather than really doing anything effective, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, this company, one of the companies mentioned in your piece, Challenge Consultancy. I mean, this is obviously a license to print money, isn't it? Because you fall, form yourself into one of these companies go visit the Ministry of Defence or something, and you've suddenly got thousands and thousands of people, albeit that they're all working from home, um, who you can charge a load of money to, uh, to teach them how to be fair. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's a company. I'm, I'm thinking you're setting up myself, Mike, if you want to get involved. We could, uh, <laughs> well, could maybe we could set up, can we set up a company doing the opposite? I suppose we wouldn't get any, we wouldn't, we wouldn't get, make any money doing it the other way. Some kind of anti-woke training. I'm yeah. not sure it's uh, you know it's up the right street at the minute. We've got some battles to fight before we get there. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but even right. within these departments, you know, we were talking the other day uh, with some colleagues about. Uh, I think it's the cabinet office. I've got 66 diversity officers mm. um, employed within the cabinet office. Wow. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pounds um, on on you know pushing the wrong agenda in my view. Right. Well, I mean, pushing an agenda which may not be necessarily wrong, but it's kind of unnecessary. It seems to me. Absolutely. You know, what is it we're trying to achieve? As we said before, is it is it diversity of physical characteristics or is it diversity of thought and making sure that the institutions that work for the country are actually representative of the country? Right. I hope that they push to, to have some of these departments based out. You know, we're talking about York and we've been talking about Stoke and, and having civil servants um, plucked from those kind of areas instead of all being in London um, might perhaps make a difference to the mindset. Yeah, right. Have you have you found any sort of support inside the Houses of Parliament in terms of other MPs who might have your view? I've never been so popular, to be honest. I've had um, <laughs> hundreds, of, hundreds of constituents drop me uh, emails the last few days and lots of colleagues seek me out just to say kind of well done for raising it. Um, right. If you believe the papers, there's, there's up to 40 uh, Conservative colleagues who've said they're not going to take this, uh, this training, which I think is exactly the right thing to do. Mm. But I suppose you might make an argument that says, well, why not go and do the training and see what it's all about from the inside to see what, it is, what this message is actually all about and what it is that they're doing. Yeah, well, as you touched on at the beginning, there's two rounds of this training. So I've done the first one, which was valuing everybody. Right. Um, two hours of very jolly conversation with very nice colleagues, but basically two hours of don't be mean to your staff. Right. Um, 
which, you know, I think I probably worked out beforehand yeah. that this three quarters of a million was kind of unnecessary. Mm. And if I was mean to my staff, I'm not entirely convinced that that was going to change anything. Right. Um, can you give so us an example of one? It. Can you give us an example of one of the things they told you not to do? It, it's it's kind of scenarios. So you go through, you know, um, uh, video of a, a senior person in an office, obviously kind of leering over a female member of staff. And then you get the question, is no. this right or is this wrong? I wasn't, if, yeah, you know, who knows? I don't know the answer to that. Who's to say? I need education. I mean, that's ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, it really is bonkers. And that's the trouble that, you know, this is all unnecessary. Absolutely. You know, it's common sense for the most part. And the idea that we've all got these these hidden evils that we're unaware of, you know, um, we all have different backgrounds and experiences. We all learn from our own lives and, and experiences, as I say, and that does give us perhaps um, different ways of viewing the world, different thought processes uh, about people and about how we judge things. But um, that's kind of normal, yeah. in my view. The idea that we should be imposing a certain mindset on everybody, I just think is mad. It really is. I mean, it sounds to me like, I don't know if you've seen it, that Tracy Ullman video, which is very funny, where she's sort of doing a, a, a class of some kind or other and all of these woke people um, keep picking her up on the vocabulary that she's using and how upset they are about something that she's said and how offended they are. But it's actually a comedy sketch. You know, this sounds like, you know, the real thing. Yeah, um, you know, we take the mick out of it, but it's it's happening. And, uh, you know, I guess hopefully a more watered-down version. But, um, you know, particularly, I think, as a, a representative of a part of the world that's felt like it hasn't had a voice, that's felt like it's been kind of sneered at over mm. the last few years for voting leave and all the rest of it. The idea that I shouldn't have difficult conversations, that I shouldn't use words that might offend the kind of the establishment and, and you know, people at the BBC, um, I think just makes me unable to do my job. And that's probably the biggest reason why I, I don't think it's right. Yeah. But do you think this is also on a, on a more kind of wider, broader level, kind of seeping into every facet of our society so that it's affecting for example the way the police operate i mean a lot of people were very critical of the police at the weekend and the way that they kind of stormed in to the trafalgar square march because it was full of people uh, who didn't want to wear masks as opposed to them storming in uh, or not rather uh, when they see black lives matter occupying oxford circus and they just let them get away with it yeah i mean it's it's seeped into so many facets of life hasn't it and i think there's this huge pressure on on the police but on all sorts of places to kind of conform to it um, it's a bit Orwellian in many ways. Mm. I, I keep using the example of the Premier League. Yeah. I don't believe for a second that every single Premier League player believes in the goals and objectives of Black Lives Matter, smash capitalism, defund the police. Yet every single player has taken the knee right. because you can only imagine um, because of fear of the consequences of being the one player that doesn't do it. Yeah, and that has alienated an awful lot of football fans. A lot of football fans say to me now on social media, we don't watch it anymore. Yeah, absolutely. I know, you know, sit down watching Match of the Day with my family and, and there's a grumble every time they, they show that bit at the start of the clip. Right. Um, certainly not um, appealed to anybody. And, and we saw the incident, um, was it up north somewhere, Bolton or somewhere like that, where the, the chap flew the White Lives Matter flag and, and ended up with criminal Burnley, yeah. uh, investigation. So right. I think the, the hypocrisy and the, um, you know, the, the, the approach to it is incredibly difficult. And I feel for the police in many ways because they're under this huge pressure. Um, but it's certainly not healthy for a, you know, a society that's going to genuinely kind of value it. Yeah, and I'm not quite sure when it all happened and how it happened, really. I mean, I sort of blame partly, not just myself, obviously, but I blame all of us, really, for kind of not paying attention, perhaps, when it was beginning to start happening in universities, when, you know, left-wing lecturers were basically banning talk of anything that they didn't like, not teaching actual history, but teaching the history that they thought they should teach, you know, and we kind of allowed that to happen, and now look where we are. 
Yeah, I think it's been happening for a long, long time. I was reading a book in, um, recently um, called The Long March by Mark Sidwell, which is about exactly that, you know, yeah. how this has kind of embedded itself in our institutions since the 40s and 50s, um, to be honest. And I think it, it does go back that far. Hmm. Um, but you tend to have these peaks and troughs politically, don't you, where, you know, Mrs. Stasher came in and had a go at the unions and all the rest of it. Tony Blair kind of uh, made a point, particularly to- towards the end of his premiership, of, imp- of putting his own people into um, civil service roles and into those kind of jobs. We've never really undone it since no. 2010, to be honest. And I think there's a lot of work to do. No, absolutely right. Let's just finish up with uh, Boris Johnson. You're, I don't know if you're going to be heading into the chamber uh, today. Uh, you probably can't. Uh, you have to draw straws for that, I suppose, now. But uh, Boris Johnson, 12.30, probably going to announce some kind of uh, lockdown of one kind or another. Um, a lot of people think he's getting this wrong. Uh, what's the view inside the party? Uh, we'll try and get in. As you say, you have to kind of draw straws and, and hope you get on the list. But um, I'll certainly be there to watch it. And um, I'm I'm hopeful that certainly given the doom and gloom over the last few days, it's not going to be as, as tough as uh, a lot of people had feared. Mm. Um, I certainly don't want to see us as, as kind of locked down again in the same way as we were before. I don't. It seems like it's, it's going to be kind of restrictions on pub times and um, a bit on, on socialising. I guess we can handle that to, to a certain extent. Uh, I don't think there's a huge appetite in the parliamentary party for kind of draconian measures i keep hearing the words uh, personal responsibility banded around a lot recently and i right. think that's that's important yeah and i think uh, certainly andrew bridgen um and, and others are going to be trying to push for more of a debate as well about the imposition of any further kind of uh, measures and any further action really right yeah i think so i mean again there's no right answer here right people have had such disparate um experiences of, of covid some people have been locked away for months other people have been carrying on as normal um, you know, there is no answer that's going to please everybody. But just from a kind of ideological point of view as a conservative, I just think we shouldn't be, you know, controlling the minutiae of everybody's lives. And I think that's probably the, the prevailing view within the Conservative Party. Yes, I think that's probably the prevailing view inside the country as well. Well, listen, Ben, good to see you. Thanks very much for sparing the time for us today. Ben Bradley, uh, Conservative MP for Mansfield there, uh, refusing basically to take any further part in this kind of unconscious bias training, which is bonkers. If you're having to do it as well, I'd love to know uh, if you're working for a company that's making you go through this kind of um, re-education class, as it were, uh, so that you can make sure that you don't offend anybody, uh, that you treat everybody the same. Well, you should be doing that anyway. You shouldn't need a course to teach you how to be a decent individual, should you? Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Hi. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode, and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 